questions of justice are relevant to all aspects of climate and environmental change. From how aware the impacts are felt the most, the allocation and prioritization of funding, the types of responses that are considered, to how negative impacts can arise from mitigation, adaptation, or restoration policies. In this episode of the Ideas Between the Lines podcast, Guardian Environmental Correspondent Damien Gale interviews IDS Research Fellows Lars Otto Ness and Amber Huff about their recent IDS bulletin, Reframing Climate and Environmental Justice, which explores the blind spots in dominant mainstream approaches to climate and environmental justice. In the podcast, they argue that approaches share a tendency to place growth, not ecology, nor climate, and certainly not justice, at the heart of the international policy agenda. This podcast is essential listening for all those studying and working on environmental and climate concerns. Hi, uh, Lars and Amber. Um, thanks so much for, for inviting me on. Uh, my name's Damien Gale. I'm an environment correspondent at The Guardian, uh, where I cover um, lots of environmental activist movements and uh, also uh, look into environmental justice. Um, and that's the topic for today's podcast. Um, uh, this is about the latest edition of the Institute for Development Studies Bulletin, Reframing Climate and Environmental Justice. Um, and I just wondered if uh, you could begin by telling me a little bit about um, why this bulletin now, um, what is the significance of climate and environmental justice? How does it differ from traditional environmentalist approaches and why does it matter? Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Damon. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so this bulletin came out of what is one of six strategic research initiatives at, at IDS. And it's tackling uh, or it's addressing uh, climate and environmental justice, obviously, because it's right at the center of a lot of discussions going on at the moment, both on biodiversity and biodiversity COP uh, last year, which uh, was quite a milestone in, in, in that sense, and also COP uh, 27 uh, last year, where justice has kind of uh, emerged in both of those. And we thought this was this has been, um, the, the bulletin itself has been kind of developed over a couple of years uh, with, as you say, uh, different contributions. And the main idea is really to look at how discussions, global discussions about climate justice kind of hit the ground, so to speak, and, and meet the realities on the ground. So the, the articles are in different ways showing what, how climate and environmental justice are relevant at a local level, um, how they kind of change the dynamics from the often perhaps a bit simplistic uh, global debates and, and adding uh, nuances to those. And that's why we want to kind of focus on the reframing bit of, of, of that. Um, I think that what uh, this special issue has to offer that's that might differ from a lot of environmentalist perspectives that we hear about is that um, there, ten there tends to be uh, a trend in which the voices of environmentalists that we tend to hear most loudly tend to be those of northern environmentalists or ones that the media favors because of their alignment with particular sustainability goals that are articulated at a high level. Um, but I do think that something that's quite different about our approach to this is um, is our empirical uh, approach across contexts across the world um, that that actually brings not just 
perspectives on environmental justice and climate justice as they're traditionally defined, but also vernaculars of environment and climate justice. What these concepts mean on the ground is quite often um, different or much more nuanced or situated in terms of its relevance um, compared to generalized definitions as they tend to be used in, in policy or in you know, big high-level debates. And just to add to that, uh, I, I, I think in relation to your question about what is what do we mean by climate and environmental justice here and how does it differ from from uh, other definitions, so to speak, um, the way we we sort of frame the justice discussion is around distributive justice, which is who does who gets what procedural who's involved in decisions and so on, but also um, a third aspect, which is often overlooked that of recognition justice whose voices are recognized and whose knowledge and who counts in these debates. Um, so I think while the framing of this justice is not new, and a lot of these discussions have, you know, decades of work behind them, um, I think we bring them together in, in, an, in a way that's more important than ever, so, so to speak, and that's why we feel there is still sort of blind spots that are overlooked in these often globally framed debates. Right. So justice is a, an increasingly important part of the mainstream environmental discourse. It's appearing now in big trans transnational summits on climate and biodiversity. Um, but you say the work that's gone into this bulletin has identified a number of, of blind spots in the way that that is understood. Um, blind spots not only in, in the traditional approach to environmental and climate policy making, but also in this new, more environmentally justice-centred approach as well. Did, could you explain to me what those blind spots are um, uh, that are outlined uh, in, in your own analysis and also in, in the other articles that appear in the bulletin? Yes, we discussed this in the in the introduction to the bulletin, and then it's illustrated throughout the pieces. Um, we think it's really important to to think towards how um, high level framings of crisis and response um, that tend to dominate debates um, can be vulnerable to blind spots. These are um, related to the fact that they can be depoliticizing, um, and when we use that term, we mean they can make knowledge claims and proposed fixes or solutions appear very straightforward and non-controversial as if they're agreed by consensus, um, while at the same time, alternative views, um, forms of knowledge, experiences, um, as well as other potential pathways to action can be um, either suppressed or, or made really invisible. Um, so, uh, so first would be depoliticization, second would be um, you know, these politics around uh, different diverse knowledges um, being, uh, being drawn upon to inform our perspectives on climate and environmental justice and action. Um, and then third, I think um, the third big blind spot would be, um, you know, risks associated with um, pursuit of a planetary or a top-down recovery where um, you have accelerating ecological disruptions and social crises that interact and manifest in different ways in particular places. Okay, third, I think um, there's a major blind spot in terms of the risks associated with 
um, potentially with a planetary recovery or a planetary approach to cover to recovery. Um, and this is important because uh, we see accelerating ecological disruptions and social crises that interact and manifest in different ways in different regional settings, different national settings, and different places, and at different governance scales. And the risk of kind of a one-size-fits-all one approach to um, applying solutions or scaling up solutions is that um, you, you miss the nuance, the, the variability in the ways that these forces interact um, and in the actual ways they're, they're affecting people and impacting their lives. This um, notion of depoliticizing uh, made me think of some environmental protest movements that I've covered as a journalist, um, in which issues around justice, around racial justice, social justice, class-based justice had all been pushed into a kind of second order by um, this notion of climate change being the overriding crisis that needed to be handled uh, first and foremost before anything else could be even considered. And I just wondered what other real world implications you see from these three blind spots, um, how, it, how is it that they've played out in climate politics or even the way that we talk about climate? I think, um, yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, I think when we, when we think about how particular movements, now, while acknowledging that movements are made up of diverse people with diverse perspectives and can be quite internally contested, um, there can be discourses that emerge from movements, um, but also from particular, uh, you know, you know, policy settings and things like that, that that do have. Uh, we see a climate change and the climate crisis being kind of the overriding um, concern that's pushed within these discourses. And I think, yeah, the risk of that um, in terms of depoliticization. Um, is that the language of crisis and the language of urgency can have the effect of um, basically shutting down debate, um, shutting down consideration of alternative perspectives, shutting down um, you know, real negotiation that might have to happen about what is the best way forward for a particular um, manifestation of an environmental problem or an interaction between something like long-term austerity and climate change that might actually require some deliberation um, and, and some you know, in-depth research into dynamics of particular places. Um, and when you have overriding discourses of crisis and urgency, give the impression that we must act now, we must act with whatever tools are at hand, and what that can do is effectively you know, shut down these spaces for, for debate and um, for possibly better, more equitable solutions. Um, now, I completely understand, um, while acknowledging that climate change is one of the most important environmental problems that, that we face, to say that we must act now and we can only follow one pathway, which would be uh, you know, involve trade-offs between, you know, growth and justice or taking the time that we might need to, to actually deliberate and sort out um, appropriate pathways forward for different places, different regions, and different people. Um, I think it's, you know, it's just a non-starter and it's going to have consequences down the line. Yes, thank you. I, I, I agree with that. And I think this is a really good 
question and i think we see it now in the in the sort of in the wake of the ukraine war and the and the efforts the global efforts to wean ourselves off the the fossil fuel um, addiction but also uh, energy security has come back fully on the agenda which uh, means that things may happen quickly um, there is the kind of overriding concerns for energy security that trumps the deliberative discussions around uh, justice implications of that, for example. Um, and I think the in terms of the bulletin, the the the, the paper by Todaro Benjamin and colleagues show that in the debate, for example, around Red Plus, that there are uh, implications of Red Plus, which is seen as a kind of very urgent, very important uh, part of the efforts to mitigate climate change, has also very, very real justice implications for the people on the margin. And that's that's very well documented. And I think they show very clearly in the case of, um, of some projects in Tanzania, for example, where uh, people already on the margin are shut out of uh, forest reserves, for example, and that their voices, their concerns, and, and, and their kind of livelihoods are ignored uh, both in formal terms but also in the discourses around red plus and that's they trace back to political reasons and and the, the the interest and the incentives of those funding those so um so that's i think a good example of how that plays out can play out in practice and um, when you mention people's um perspectives and experiences being ignored um and overridden by these environmental solutions it makes me think as well of uh, another one of these problems that you've the, the these blind spots that you've identified which is this lack of recognition of diverse contexts and knowledges um and you argue in in your introduction that looked at from a certain perspective problems around climate and ecological the climate and ecological crisis can appear to be super wicked problems um which don't seem to have uh, a common sense solution but that this is only when you look at them from a certain perspective um could, could you explain on on how it is that we might be able to find new perspectives that that do enable us to find solutions to these problems yeah, I think opening up debates to plural forms of knowledge and what we mean when we talk about plural forms of knowledge is, for example, you know, the knowledge that people develop about their environment that they grow up in, um, but also like alternative perspectives in um, in the sciences and the social sciences across the board. I think um, opening up debates to, you know, different viewpoints different forms of experience of change, different experiences of injustice is really important. Um, and, you know, where can these uh, perspectives be found? I think, you know, by talking to, listening to, and trusting people who are being affected, not just by physical changes in the environment that are a consequence of climate change or other forms of environmental change, but who are also suffering because of policy changes that are a poor fit to context that can amplify injustices that have been historically perpetuated. I think a lot of times um, when we talk about policymaking um, around climate change, um, you know, misrecognition can happen when, um, you know, very privileged 
voices speak for people who have been historically marginalized or might, you know, lack a platform to to make their voices heard uh, because of their historical experiences. And I think, you know, actually listening to people who have these experiences and have this knowledge that they've developed about changes that are affecting them, you know, and have, you know, suggestions for what could make their lives better, what could help them adapt to change, how existing policies might be amplifying inequities or forms of violence that they experience is really important. And that often can be crowded out when the voices that that we do hear are coming from very powerful interest groups, um, you know, or, you know, particular disciplinary perspectives can can crowd out other voices um, in research and things like that. I mean, and that that is the work of depoliticization um, in this area. Yes, thank you. I, I, I think just to, to add to that, I, I, I think um, what we suggest is that a number of principles or a number of things uh, we uh, suggest that to bring out those hidden aspects or those um, invisible, often invisible aspects uh, is exactly that, to, to bring out the knowledge and the voices of those who are marginalized and give them platforms to, to, to speak and to have their knowledge and experiences recognized. In, in the adaptation area, um, a lot of the solutions put forward are sort of large scale uh, in, in the agriculture area, for example, climate smart agriculture, some of the suggestions for solutions are built on technological fixes that either ignore or overlook uh, or, or sort of misrepresent the experiences and knowledges of people uh, that people have. And I think a lot of that uh, is either sort of forgetting or um, sidelining local knowledge, um, either because it's seen as kind of and not relevant anymore in, in, uh, in, in, in the context of climate change, um, or even if it's recognized that it's kind of uh, overlooked as a, as a solution for the future because it's seen as no longer relevant, for example. Um, and, and forgetting that these are often very highly sophisticated and dynamic systems that are not only based on the sort of skills and tricks that people have, but also understanding of changing environments and often very advanced ways of thinking about change as well. And a case in point is the quite rapid and dramatic droughts in the Sahel in the 70s, where experiences shows and evidence shows afterwards that uh, farmers and people there coped much better with uh, these uh, dramatic changes than than was given credit for, and and certainly that that sort of modern technology could could help with. I think also it's important that we keep in mind that it's not enough to say that equity can be achieved by simply leaving it up to governments. Um, because it's important to remember, you know, when you dig down deeply and when you look at these empirical cases where people are talking about issues around justice and their experiences of um, environmental change and policy change, um, you, you see that within countries you have very complicated dynamics. Um, you, have, you have complicated histories of people experiencing injustice on the basis of caste, of class, of gender, 
Um, and these histories are, uh, these histories matter today um, and they affect the, the vulnerabilities that people experience um, or their capabilities to, to cope with changes. And I think that um, it's not, it's not enough just to simply stop at the national level and say, well, this is, you know, this is the Southern view, or this is the majority worldview. Um, you have to actually go to, go to people who are, are having these experiences um, and who might just, might not just lack platform on the global stage, but also might experience, um, you know, silencing or suppression of their viewpoints and interests within their country contexts. Right, that's um, that's really interesting, and uh, it's it's something that I wanted to ask you about as well. Um, just now, all related to what I wanted to ask you about next, which is um, which is how these and where these these issues are expressed. Are they mainly expressed in in the developing world? Is it a developing world problem? Um, these that the people are facing these environmental injustices, or are they manifesting? in a more distributed way are they in the in the global north as well um can, can it, how far does the the work in the bulletin look at that i think that um these are definitely uh problems that go well beyond the you know so-called developing world or the global south context these are problems that are being experienced all around the world um you know even within relatively wealthy and powerful countries and regions um, you have, you know, regions that have been extractive historically, um, and that puts them often at a political disadvantage relative to, to other regions where wealth gets concentrated. Um, but around the world, um, you know, how responses to climate change and policy responses to climate change um, are affecting issues around justice um, is definitely patterned um, you know, by histories of colonization, imperialism, um, extractivism, and other forms of violence. And I think this is something that um, the, the piece um, in the in the special issue that deals with um, abolitionism within, you know, environmental movements um, addresses. But, you know, there are also examples of how these dynamics are um, impacting people in rich countries. Um, yes, I... I... I agree with that. I, I think um, a lot of these issues are universal and certainly not uh, not confined to developing country or global south context. And the, um, for example, in the bulletin, the um, the paper by uh, Garcia Dori and uh, and colleagues on pastoralists are looking at how sheep farmers in Italy are sharing concerns and, and have very similar concerns actually to um, sheep far or pastoralists in, in Kenya uh, and other developing country contexts. So these are very universal issues and you see the same with um, issues around just transition of coal dependent communities in Europe and America, for example. There is an ongoing protest actually in, in Norway about uh, wind farms that were put up illegally on um, Sami traditional lands uh, and, and reindeer herders and they got um, the, the high court or the supreme court in Norway gave them, um, they, they, they won in the high court, but the government has so far um, 
not acted on on, on that uh, that decision. So, which brings the question around, you know, trust between these indigenous communities and uh, and the state, uh, which is obviously very sensitive because of the the long-standing issues of. Um, of, of these communities being very disadvantaged and, and discriminated against in, in the Norwegian society. And that's reflected across uh, a, a lot of northern uh, countries as well. Yeah, this really crosses northern and southern contexts. You've seen around the world um, an increasing criminalization of protest, um, particularly impacting environmental movements. You've seen swaths of killings of environmental defenders throughout um the global south but also um in the global north you have um you know indigenous resistance in uh the u.s for example um it's been highly heavily policed um and suppressed um yeah i think this is this is a problem that is intimately related to questions of justice and injustice in the context of environmental change and i think that it's important not to um, invisibilize these str struggles or or to dismiss them as something that's far away. Um, even in the UK, we have um, people involved in nonviolent environmental defense who, um, you know, face jail time, um, have been imprisoned, have been harassed um, for, for exercising um, what they see as their right to, to legitimately protest ecocidal uh, development projects. Um, but I'm, I'm really glad that you touched on uh, this subject of policing and criminalization of protest. Um, the article about the potential links between environmental justice and abolition was one that really stood out to me as quite interesting. Um, and particularly because it feels as though that's one of these perhaps diverse contexts or knowledges that might seem most counterintuitive to people in the traditional environmental movement. Um, and I say that not because they are not taking part in protests and being criminalized, but because many, a lot of approaches to environmental solutions would say we need a strong state with an ability to enforce um, environmental regulations um, to, to stop environmental harms from, from taking place. But this article, identifies policing as a key institution in perpetuating and creating environmental justice injustices. So can, can you explain a little bit about how it is that the police are doing that for me, please? Um, I think I think that if we're if we're talking about the the perspective of abolitionism in this context, we need to talk about the fact that um, many people um, have you know very strong critiques of the failure of the state in recent decades to actually enforce um, environmental regulations or to facilitate the rollback of environmental regulations. Um, and that leaves, you know, like in the case that Lars Otto mentioned with the Sami people, when uh, a judgment comes against the state, but the state won't enforce um, that judgment to, to protect an environment or a resource or a group of people, who is going to do it? Um, and then, it, you know, I think the idea is that it falls upon the people to be the ones who will speak up about it if they can't, um, if they can't rely on uh, the government to to enforce those sorts of decisions and norms. Um, I think the role of policing um, is is incredibly important, particularly um, this has been highlighted by people who study extractive industries. 
um, and extractive developments in the North and the South, um, and the ways that policing is used um, alongside uh, what have been described in terms of counterinsurgency tactics to, to either pacify or enforce um, uh, ecocide, the destruction of the environment um, for profit. Um, and this, this goes to a critique of, uh, of the, the state as it currently exists and its role in um, defending private property in ways that many see trumps um, the what many people assume is the role of the state or the social contract um, to defend the well-being of people. Um, and this is, this is where that perspective is coming from. And in that particular article, it says that our understanding of policing shouldn't be limited to just the formal institutions of police. Are there any other institutions specifically in the environmental context that might be playing that role? No, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, when we, when we talk about going, understanding policing as, um, you know, kind of a social technology, um, it it's related to, you know, how um, the logics that exist kind of in the institutions of policing get kind of distributed and reproduced throughout society with the way that um, people might discipline each other or themselves, but also um, how these things get reproduced in educational institutions, in civic institutions, um, and manifest in, you know, uh, things like the surveillance state, um, where, you know, you feel like you have um, all of your personal information, you know, might be subject to um, some sort of disciplinary action or or something like that. And that be kind of a, a constant atmospheric that um, while it might not involve the police telling you do this or do that, at the same time, it's a form of discipline because if you can, you know, if you if you feel that you can always be observed, then it affects people's behavior i was just wondering um and this is related to the police um and I, one thing that i i've also been reading um recently andreas malm's how to blow up a pipeline and he talks in there one of his key quote which is pulled out from the back cover blurb is um property will cost us the earth and i wondered if you could sort of talk talk about whether you know, the way in which the police play a role in securing property um, over and above, uh, you know, and, and, and with that property comes the, the right to, to exploit and degrade the environment with that property right. I mean, maybe I've answered my own question. I think you've answered your own question. That's exactly what <laughs> I just wanted you to talk about it. Um, sorry, <laughs> does that make sense? No, yeah, I mean, it, it, it has to go with this idea of the, the state as the arbiter of, of you know, property relations, the, the defender of the property relations, and the police is the enforcement wing of that um, power structure. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, we could, we could go into, you know, talking about the histories of enclosure in Europe, but also, you know, um, enclosure, you know, through colonization and seizure of land and resources that are being replicated now in, you know, land grabbing and green grabbing practices that, you know, might be set to accelerate, you know, with calls for, you know, uh, uh, 
new, you know, 30% of land in, uh, sorry, 30, 30% of like terrestrial territory being put under protection and, and things like that. But I mean, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, these are, these are manifestations of um, the same logics that led to, you know, the, the dispossession of, of the people from the commons in the, um, you know, in the history, you know, we often hear of the history of the English enclosures, but this happened all over the world at different times and in different, um, in different ways. Uh, you know, the, the, the structure of our society and I mean, the, the relationship between property as um, an institution that is violently defended through policing, particularly when that property is deemed to be something that's pr productive through um, through extraction, industrial production, or through rent seeking. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's kind of the, the underlying basis of a lot of injustice that is experienced by people. I mean, there's a reason that you know we have huge international workers movements that identify themselves as landless you know, um, having experienced historical dispossession. And we see that we see these logics replicated oftentimes in unjust policies that are framed in terms of environmental, um, climate, biodiversity protection, any number of things. I mean, ask anybody who's, you know, studied conservation from a social science perspective um, in countries where um, you have high levels of inequality, and high levels of people involved in subsistence production, um, but also, you know, high biodiversity priorities or, you know, endowments of natural resources that are valuable to international NGOs and, and uh, mining companies. And, and they'll, they'll tell you a very similar story to the ones we hear historically about processes of dispossession related to um, securing private property for, you know, the growth of the nation or, you know, the growth for growth's sake, even as, as a logic that we are, you know, indoctrinated to, to value and reproduce. I think the, these are important problems to interrogate, really, to, to think about these fundamental relationships or the fundamental structures that shape our society and the ways in which these are playing out in the crises that we face. And, um, and, and I really think that's what I've got out of reading this bulletin and chatting to you. But you've identified all of these really deep, systemic, um, almost implacable looking um, problems in the structures of society that have led us to this, A, to this situation, and which seem to suggest um, it's going to be very hard for us to, to find a way out of it that's equitable for people. I mean, is there a way to reform the global policy agenda for this to work? Or do we simply need to revolutionise the entire system? I think we do need to revolutionize the entire system. I think, I think, um, you know, call me an idealist, but I think we, uh, if we're going to have an international system that's worth supporting, it's going to be one that puts people's well-being, sense of dignity, uh, sense of, you know, right to decide their identity and to have a sense of connection to territory and, you know, maintain the knowledge that they want to maintain and pass it down to their children. I think you know, we need a system that respects that at a fundamental level. 
And um, when you're talking about environmental injustice and processes of climate injustice, what we're doing, you know, and breaking through depoliticization, but when we're talking about that in practice, we're talking about a fundamental denial of people's, you know, basic dignity as human beings to live and to decide how they want their lives to to go. And, um, you know, and that, you know, I think we need to push beyond like talking about people, you know, who experience environmental injustice in a very instrumentalizing way. Like we, we, we often talk about like, oh, indigenous people are like this, or this people are like this and, you know, have this knowledge and it will save us. We need to quit being extractive in the way we think about these knowledges and actually let the knowledge speak for itself and let people use that knowledge um, in a way that's not, you know, just having to feed into somebody else's agenda, um, but actually use it in a way that meaningfully shapes their ability to live lives as they choose with dignity and a sense of well-being and happiness. It's very idealistic, but <laughs> I mean, it's it's super idealistic. Uh, yeah, it is super idealistic, and I suppose I've I'll play the role of the of the pragmatic journalist and ask you about um, COP twenty seven last year in Sharm El Sheikh um, ended with my colleagues in the press described as a historic deal on loss and damage for um for countries in the global south that find themselves at the sharp end of climate related disasters does that not mean that some progress is being made or are the same injustices encoded in that as everything else which we've spoken about today i, I think it's definitely a step forward i mean let's not Let's not forget uh, that this is a, a result of a 30-year-plus struggle for for recognizing the, the fact that there are losses and damages in from climate change. So I think symbolically and in a sort of big justice, global justice sense, that's uh, a step forward. <clears throat> and I, I, I don't think that should be under underplayed at all, because symbolically that's really important. I think I would say it's necessary but not sufficient. And I think there's a lot of of further work that's needed on making sure, for example, that there is finance to follow up the pledges that's been made or the decisions that's been made, and that's not, not at all clear yet. There's also a lot of sort of non-economic and cultural aspects of it that I don't think is fully recognized, really, in the loss and damage debate. So there's a lot of, of the kind of details that remains but I think I think we we need to take the the, the the small victories or the small and big I think for for some actors in that debate this has seemed like a, a major step forward uh it's not enough and it doesn't go far enough and I I, I just um I, I do think still um that there is some way to go and and on the earlier point, um, I, I do think I, I think what's certain is that we need we do need uh, transformative change, and we need need to transform uh, whatever we call uh, that that change. Um, and I think there might there's a lot of talk about tipping points, uh, even social tipping points. Uh, even though I struggle to believe that uh, in, from day to day, 
I do think we, sh we shouldn't give up hope. And I think what we're trying to do also in the bulletin is to kind of bring it down to um, kind of what, what needs to happen in, in the short and medium term. And one of these is to kind of stop pretending that any decision on tackling or addressing climate and environmental change are justice and equity neutral. Everything we do will have implications and we need to be upfront and we need to be uh, open about those. And also uh, bring those more to the fore in some of the solutions that have been uh, suggested, for example, solar geoengineering and, and on the more outlandish side and I kind of bring in the social and, and social justice aspects in, in those as well. And I think, I think some, some of the more um, large scale solutions and hasty solutions, you might say, will seem less palatable, less, less feasible if you look at it from a justice perspective. So by bringing in the justice aspect, uh, you can also uh, evaluate or assess these solutions uh, in, a, in a better light, I think. Um, one of the things I'd hoped we might cover is um, the way that growth has found its way to the core of the uh, climate and environmental policy agenda and, and how that works and how that plays out. Do you feel as though you have the capacity to quickly tell me about that? Yeah, growth is is always the elephant in the room when we're talking about these big high level um, uh, policy proposals. And I think that, um, you know, there are fundamental contradictions between, you know, seeing the world as, you know, kind of an imminent market world in which all the solutions can be found by just turning everything into a marketable commodity. Um, and therefore, you know, producing the conditions for unlimited growth that's decoupled from negative environmental and social impacts. I think, you know, I mean, I think we just need to, um, you know, acknowledge that that these assumptions are behind a lot of the growth focused solutions that are put forward and um, that they're, you know, ultimately not going to lead us where we want to go in terms of justice, uh, but also in terms of actual you know, substantive response to the processes and, you know, social environmental dynamics that have gotten into us into this situation in the first place. Um, rather, they're, they're going to, um, you know, the growth imperative is, is going to like reproduce, but also displace and try to move around um, these, these forms of damage. Um, and then, yeah, it's it's not going to lead to the sort of resolution, the win-win-win that, um, you know, is characteristic of like green economy discourses and, you know, the kind of discourse around sustainable mining and, and that sort of thing. So I think, you know, I think we need to own up to that. Cool. Um, thanks so much, guys. Um, it's been a real privilege talking to you. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe and share to help us spread the word. Do you have a feature that you'd like to appear in a future episode? Then get in touch on email at betweenthelines at ids.ac.uk.